0: It's the 14th of July, 2023. Hi, this is the Room Now Podcast. I'm Jack Cushwood, Room Now. This week on the podcast, CVA, PJP, TKA, ADA, acronyms and abbreviations only a rheumatologist could love. Let's start with pain. Isn't that what it's all about? Surprisingly, we actually don't spend enough time really talking about pain and better management of pain. Um, I think we need some pain numbers to maybe underscore that in our approach to patients. I mean, that's what we do, not always directly, sometimes indirectly. Nonetheless, British Medical Journal's got an interesting overview of pain, saying it's obviously the leading cause of disability worldwide. Chronic pain affects a third to a half the population. When you look at high-impact pain, high-impact chronic pain, that's pain that uh, is chronic and, and significantly impairs function. It's seen in up to 5% of the U.S. population. On the other hand, somewhere between 22 and 50% of all primary care consultations are about pain. Um, again, very sobering numbers. Um, speaking of chronic pain, an interesting study called the MOST study, it's a osteoarthritis NIH funded, um, study of osteoarthritis. And this is a study of 2,093 patients who had, uh, serial, uh, conventional radiographs, CT scores, pain scores, um, done over a two year period. And what they showed was that if you had evidence of intraarticular mineralization, I assume that they mean by that calcific deposits, uh, or chondrocalcinosis, that it was seen in up to 10% of patients with um, that they did their assessments on. Those people who had intra-articular uh, calcification or mineralization had a two-fold higher risk of uh, frequent knee pain or uh, almost a twofold higher risk of intermittent and then constant pain. The point is that this is a sort of a, a radiographic marker, if you will, for those who are more likely to have chronic pain associated with knees just because you have knee OA doesn't mean you have pain just because you have you know a lot of pain doesn't mean you have knee OA it's really a um not a one-to-one connection there but in this situation uh, the mineralization within the joint whether it's the menisci or uh outside the capsule or uh other places again was associated with a higher risk of clinical and significant pain uh an interesting analysis looked at mortality with fibromyalgia. We know fibromyalgia patients seek medical attention more. They have longer problem lists. But does that equate to more serious outcomes? Well, you can't get any more serious than, than mortality. And in this study, it was a meta-analysis of almost 200,000 patients from eight studies. Um, and they show that all cause mortality was increased 27% in those who had fibromyalgia, and that was significant. Now, if they looked at people who had fibromyalgia based on the 1990 diagnostic criteria, that wasn't significant. But if you look at all patients, it was significant, uh, regardless of their, the criterion for their diagnosis. Features associated with the increased mortality rate were um, accidents, infections, suicide, and interestingly, a decreased risk of cancer in patients with fibromyalgia. A double-blind, randomized sham-controlled trial of vagus nerve stimulation. You know, we that made all the buzz back about, what was it, four years ago? Mark Genovese presented great early data on a cohort of patients treated with vagal nerve stimulation. Now it's they're into other trials. Now we have another study here. This one is a control trial, a sham control trial of 100, and, 100 plus patients. 101 completed the trial with a, wet, a week 12 outcome. And they're doing auricular vagal nerve stimulation. Um, and that seems to work well. You could look at the tweet and see the what, what the apparatus looks like. But they found, when you compare those who received... The vagal nerve stimulation versus sham, no significant difference when it came to ACR20 outcomes. So at week 12, it was 27% for vagal nerve stimulation or 27% for the sham procedure. Uh, also, no significant difference in change in dash 28 CRP levels. Uh, this had a lot of fanfare the question is will it pan out in the, in the long run there are other there are other trials going on on this this would be again a non pharmacologic way of intervening and basically in, in inhibiting tnf and the inflammatory response by stimulating the vagus nerve but this says not so much so giant cell otoritis, we're concerned these days about extracranial involvement is why we do extracranial Imaging on newly diagnosed GCA patients. This particular study looked at a, um, a, a large series of patients who had GCA and the frequency of um, CVAs. Um, and uh, while it was increased, the number is still quite low. It's about 4 to 5 percent of GCA patients. Um, and this is a fairly large French hospital study, a single cohort, but a large number of patients, four to five percent risk of cerebrovascular ischemic events. I wrote a few years ago about (laughs) whether you should do a single knee replacement or do two at a time. I'm the beneficiary of knee replacement surgery and I had both mine done. So I'm an advocate for that. Uh, Although a lot of institutions will not do it, it's sometimes the surgeons who make the call, sometimes it's the institution. I wonder if it's safety or if it's money, but nonetheless, here's another study that weighs into this. And anyway, my review that you could find on Room Now basically said that both had their merits. That, But it seemed like it was okay to do um, a double simultaneous knee replacement surgery. This is a commercial claims analysis of 21,000 patients <clears throat> who had both knees done at a time compared to a matched cohort of 126,000 patients with a unilateral knee replacement? They looked at 90 day um, outcomes and they showed that those who had simultaneous bilateral TKAs had a significantly higher risk of pulmonary embolism, a twofold higher risk, CVA, a twofold higher risk, acute uh, blood loss and anemia, a twofold higher risk. And obviously, the need for transfusion, transfusion a 7.8-fold higher risk. Also, 90-day admission rates were 35% higher in that group. Now, again, there was a lot of this literature out there. When I did a review, I think you have to look at all the literature together, come up with your own idea, but this is sort of suggests it's probably better to do one than to do two. I still think I would have had two done at a time for me, but that was just my story and it worked out well. Um JAMA has a nice review of uh, pneumocystis uroveccii pneumonia, pneumonia, or PJP, um, who gets it and how you should prophylax. This is a frequent topic amongst rheumatologists about whether we should be prophylaxing. Uh, and their bottom line was that, and this was not a uh, the CDC, this was just a, people who wanted to write about this, uh, if you're immunocompromised and immunodeficient, you need PJP prophylaxis. Amongst our patients, those who are on high dose steroids, those with, and those with ANCA associated vasculitis are the ones who should get PJP prophylaxis reflexively. Again, they said that there's not a lot of good data uh, or incomplete data to merit a, a a weigh in on whether RA patients, lupus patients, you know, um, etc., should all be getting PJ pr- PJP prophylaxis. I, I personally think that. I would add to that group, uh, any patient going on um, chronic rituximab therapy, uh, which is why it's often uh, uh, included with ANCA prophylaxis. But rituximab is associated with a higher risk of uh, PJP infections. Uh, Lancet uh, Rheumatology published the results of a baricitinib. um, I think this is a phase three registration trial for baricitinib to be used in kids with JIA and multiple types of JIA. So they studied um, uh, baricitinib versus placebo in a phase three trial, 219 patients. The patients either had to have polyarticular JIA or um, uh, or I'm sorry, um, juvenile psoriatic arthritis or enthesitis-related arthropathy. Those were the subsets that were included here. I don't know why in pediatric rheumatology you're lumping these groups together they really really makes no sense at all because their pathology while they may respond to the same drug there certainly are different disorders are they not but nonetheless this is what's done for registration important part of these registration trials is that the pharmacokinetics showing that is equal to that when you do adult-like dosing and that was shown as part of this study in this study again everybody receives open label baricitinib for, I believe, 12 weeks. And then the responders, in this case, 74% of the cohort were responders are then re-randomized to either baricitinib or placebo. And then the primary outcome is time to flare. And so, um, of course, they looked at uh, a lot of other outcomes, but the time to flare was obviously significantly shorter with the placebo group than with baricitinib. And I mean, about almost eighty or seventy-five percent uh, faster. Uh, there are so few people flaring on baricitinib they couldn't even give you a time to flare. So this seems like it's a good trial, good enough to to result in somewhere in the future baricitinib have a JIA indication. Uh, a, a study of cancer risk amongst drugs. You know, this was obviously a big issue with the oral surveillance study done with tofacitinib showing a higher risk of cancer uh, in patients taking a JAK and not as compared to people on a TNF inhibitor. So was it because the JAK maybe caused more cancers or because the TNF inhibitor was better at preventing cancers than was the JAK? We don't really know. So there are a lot of studies since the publication of oral surveillance and the safety measures that came down from that that ended up being in in, uh, box warnings on the labels of of all the JAK inhibitors. This particular meta-analysis looked at um, 62 RCTs, 16 long-term extension trials, comparing the malignancy risk in those taking JAK inhibitors, TNF inhibitors, methotrexate, or placebo. Uh, Overall, the cancer rate in these RA patients taking these drugs was 1.15 per 100 patient years. That seems like what's been shown in other studies. But what they showed when you compared the JAK inhibitor to all the other drugs, remember it's TNF, methotrexate, placebo, there's no difference in the malignancy rate in uh, patients on placebo and patients on JAK, uh, or in patients on JAK inhibitors or on methotrexate. But, like seen with oral surveillance, there was a uh, greater risk of neoplasia with JAK inhibitors compared to the TNF inhibitors. That was 50% higher risk, and that was significant. And again, I think the question is still the same. Is it that JAK maybe causes more malignancies? I don't really think so. I think that the TNF inhibitors are maybe better at inflammation per se, and maybe lower the risk better. And that has been shown for a few studies, um, although not a lot of studies. Uh, again, this sort of supports the current guidance that's out there for jack inhibitors. So we also, with jack inhibitors, worry about the the heart issues, and that was addressed by an aatositinib post hoc analysis of all their select trials, and in this particular analysis of, of uh, six different phase three select trials, they looked at the risk of uh, cardiovascular outcomes mainly being mace but they also looked at malignancy and vte um and what they showed was that um that if you had let's see here um that an increased risk of mace malignancy and vte was seen in all their studies regardless of whether you were on upadacitinib or on adalimumab. So does that make it A-OK? Well, again, the warnings and package inserts are what they are. The, again, there's the a problem with this kind of analysis because there, it's done to try to emulate what was done in oral surveillance, meaning um, over age 50, one cardiovascular risk factor or more, but you don't really quite do the same, do you? Number one, while the numbers can be great, you don't know what the disease activity was, what the comorbidities were. You're not matching those factors up. So trying to extrapolate from this kind of analyses, post hoc analyses, and compare it to a prospective study, which was oral surveillance, is problematic. Nonetheless, that's kind of how this ended up. Um, lastly, um, anti-drug antibodies. What do you think? Do you do it? Um, I really don't. Uh, And if I'm considering doing it, and someone who's, for instance, on adalimumab and not doing well, um, I'm always just going to move on to another therapy rather than wait for the the test to come back. So, two interesting reports on anti-drug antibodies this week. One, um, a small cohort study, 35 patients on rituximab um, with lupus. So, lupus patients on taking rituximab and followed for three years, they found that the risk of anti-rituximab anti-drug antibodies was 64% over the three-year span. And it was largely kind of consistent over that time. It was higher in people who had previously been exposed to rituximab. There was a lull, and then you give it back. That's You're getting an amnestic response, are you not? Um, and your immune system is working just fine, thank you. Um, less likely to happen if the patient was rituximab naive. So... In this study, they showed that if you were, had anti-drug antibodies here for, against rituximab, you had lower rituximab levels at six months in the circulation and increased relapses of lupus activity over the time period that they were being observed. Lastly, in vitro analyses showed that these anti-rituximab antibodies did have neutralizing capacity and would lower the, uh, uh, basically the, the amount of effective drug being delivered to the patient. So I don't do anti-drug antibodies with rituximab, but that, this might be one explanation about why patients would relapse on such therapy. Um, they, in the next study, they showed that being on methotrexate lowers the risk of that. So that's one, one, one thing you can do. The next study was uh, a, another um, large study that looked at um, 230 RA patients and who were on biologics and whether or not they had anti-drug antibodies. Overall, 38% of patients... Um, had uh, anti-drug antibodies when they were being treated with TNF inhibitors. It was only six percent with Etanercept. You'd expect that. Fifty percent with Rituximab. We just talked about that. And twenty percent with tosilizumab So, what they showed that that there was an inverse relationship between having anti-drug antibodies um, and the, uh, the subsequent ULAR response at month twelve. So more anti-drug antibodies, less clinical efficacy. That has been advocated. You know, that's why they do this in GI and some other conditions. In multivariate analysis, the predictors of um, response to treatment was going to be anti-drug antibodies, body mass index, obesity, and rheumatoid factor were all inversely associated with a better response to treatment. And lastly, if you were on methotrexate, it uh it, it really significantly impaired anti drug antibody uh, formation um, by at least fifty percent so that's it for this week on the podcast. Hope you enjoyed this and others um, i want to uh, I have one uh, case that I wanted to present from Ken Stark wrote me an email asking me a question about what to do in patients with um, on TNF inhibitors or on biologics who get a um, an atypical mycobacterial infection um and and so you know things like um mycobacterium kansasi i or mai or, or all these and and can you ever go back on the tnf inhibitor and the answer is the same as it is for chronic fungal infections if you're on a tnf inhibitor and you get a non-tuberculous mycobacterial infection what you used to call atypical mycobacteria or you get an invasive fungal infection more than thrush but like Deep tissue, and you never you can you have to treat those things. Stop the TNF inhibitor, but realize you never fully eradicate that infection. So going back to the TNF inhibitor is not a good idea. Good news is you can go on to any other biologic, and and be safe. Uh, the good news is that you could go back to a TNF inhibitor if you were really forced to, but you'd have to put the patient on chronic prophylaxis against that. NTM infection or the fungal infection. So, chronic itraconazole for someone who has, chronic, you know, deep, deep tissue histoplasmosis, for instance, and someone who had, again, a um, a MAC or MAI infection on a TNF inhibitor, you would put them on anything else: abatacept, tocilizumab, rituximab, a JAK inhibitor. They'd all, again. You don't need to worry um, nearly as much. I mean, risk of reactivation of TB with those drugs is very low compared to a TNF inhibitor. But if you had to use TNF inhibitor then, and it was, you know, um, a MAC, you'd have to be on a MAC drug, you know, to suppress the infection chronically. And that does work in some patients. Anyway, that's it for the podcast. Tune in next week for more good news and rheumatology. Take care.